Open your Bibles to the 23rd chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 23. Let's pray and ask uh, the Lord's blessing upon his word. Father, thank you for our chance to be here together this morning as a body gathered. Thank you for your loving grace and mercy and care over us this past week as we have been a body scattered. Scattered. And so, Father, as we uh, come together to praise and worship your name, uh, we do so around the word. It's our desire, Father, to hear from you today by your spirit and through his word. May you guide and direct the teaching of the word that that which is said is true and faithful, helpful. And, Father, may you soften our hearts even in this moment that we would be prepared to receive what you have for us. Father, help us to be those who hear and do the word of God. We ask it in the name of our risen Savior. Amen. Well, beloved, among uh, Christians, if a person uh, calls you a Pharisee, they have pretty much insulted you, haven't they? They have pretty much called you the least desirable name that you can think of in our circles, a Pharisee. The Pharisees were Jesus' most bitter enemies, his most bitter enemies. And they were the recipients of his most forceful denunciations. So for someone to call you a Pharisee, kind of put you in the camp of those that are in full opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ and the receiving of his severest rebukes. So nobody wants to be called a Pharisee. That's not a kind name. Now, the Pharisees, not all of them, were implacable in their hatred and opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly, we can think of Nicodemus in John 3, who comes to Jesus and And then we find later in John's gospel that he becomes a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the book of Acts, in the early chapters of the book of Acts, it speaks about some from the party of the Pharisees who do come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So not every single Pharisee was hardened in their opposition to Christ. But certainly as a whole, as a group, the scribes and the Pharisees stand out in the New Testament for their opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Pharisees were masters of the art of a superficial piety, a superficial piety, cultivating an external illusion of godliness while denying its power. And Christ himself says and warns against them in Matthew chapter 23 and in verse 3 that they are not to be imitated. They are not to be imitated. Now, we need to know a little more about these scribes and Pharisees, I think, to appreciate and to understand why Christ speaks to them in such harsh terms. There is no other group of individuals that receive anywhere near the severity of the denunciation that he gives to this group of people. William Barclay, in his commentary on John, has actually a very excellent summary 
and discussion of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so let me share a little from that, from Barclay's commentary for you. And I think it will help us to sort of understand them a little bit better and the religious system that they represented. Because really in its finality, the denunciation of the scribes and the Pharisees here in Matthew 23 in particular is a denunciation of the religious system of which they were the masters. And Jesus is calling the people of the nation at this late hour to turn from that and to turn to him their only hope their only hope of course we know the ultimate result of that is that they chose that which they were comfortable with that the religious system of pharisaical judaism they ended up choosing that rather than their messiah but let's take a look what is it about this system that's so attractive so appealing. Where do the scribes and the Pharisees come from? Well, they go back in the history of the nation of Israel, really, uh, to the year 536 B.C., 536, which was the formal end of the 70-year Babylonian captivity. It's when the people of Israel, uh, who had been carried away by the Babylonians 70 years earlier because of their sin and idolatry, are reunited with their homeland and set about to rebuild their shattered lives. They're going to rebuild their temple. They're going to rebuild the city, the capital city of Jerusalem. They're going to rebuild their lives. And Nehemiah, and, uh, in his book, records... The, um, the important event of the reconstruction of the wall around the city of Jerusalem. You probably remember that. It's really quite an amazing feat that the wall is rebuilt in a, re- in a record amount of time against incredible opposition. And with the rebuilding of the wall around the city of Jerusalem, the city itself is sort of reconstituted. And then along with that comes the, re- the rebuilding of the temple as authorized by God. But an amazing thing happens. It's actually recorded for us in the 8th chapter of the book of Nehemiah. I'm not going to turn you there, but you can pencil it down, check it out on your own. But following the, the completion of the wall itself, Nehemiah, the governor, has Ezra, the scribe, come to read the book of the law to the people. And it's really quite an event. The people all gather there, and and, uh, there's a raised platform, and and Ezra stands on this platform, and the people all rise in his presence for the reading of the Word of God. And it's really quite a catalytic moment in the history of the nation, of the people of Israel. Because it was from that moment that that the nation was transformed and began to to give themselves wholeheartedly in full dedication to the keeping of the law of Moses. They committed themselves to the scriptures, and in particular to the law of Moses. And it was as a result of that, that for the nation of Israel, the study of the law became the greatest of all professions. What do you want your son to grow up to do? You want your son to grow up to be a scribe. You want your son to grow up to be a Pharisee. 
It became the, the, the sort of the highest goal of the nation, a nation committed to the law of Moses and serious about the law of Moses and desiring to follow the law of Moses in its full and complete detail. It was a very noble endeavor, a very wonderful desire. But as so often happens, over time, the the train begins to go off the rails. And that's exactly what happened here. In the centuries that followed that time, because of the desire to be committed to the law of Moses and, and, and the great principles of the law of Moses, the scribes began to erect what they called fences around the law. Fences around the law. The idea was to, to not violate the law of Moses. So in order to not violate the law of Moses, we need to build these fences of regulation that will keep you from violating the law of Moses, almost like tripwires, as it were, that will let you know you're getting too close, back up. The problem was, though, that these fences, these, um, and much of it by oral tradition initially, uh, began to take on a life of its own. It began to become its own set of elaborate rituals and laws and regulations and interpretations. And, and one scribe said this and one rabbi said that. And, and it began to accumulate in, until it, it began to fill multiple volumes. It's known as the Talmud. It's known as the Talmud. Ultimately, filling 22 thick volumes of additional regulation, additional interpretation, additional tradition surrounding the law of Moses. It became an elaborate system of rules and regulations. And that domain became the exclusive domain of a group of men called Pharisees. Pharisees. Men committed to living out Every single regulation, every single tradition, every single rule, every single requirement. They were dedicated legalists. Dedicated legalists. They spent their entire lives seeking to please God by living out the teaching of the scribes. Living out that teaching. There were about perhaps as many as 6,000 Pharisees in the nation of Israel. So it's not a large group. And they were not monolithic. They were not monolithic. In fact, the Talmud itself distinguishes, according to Barclay, seven different kinds of Pharisees. Interesting. Seven different kinds of Pharisees. According to Barclay, they were first what he calls the shoulder Pharisee. The shoulder Pharisee. These were people who, men who wore their good deeds on their shoulders in order to be seen by men. Shoulder Pharisees. Second was the wait a little Pharisee. The wait a little Pharisee. This was one who could always find an excuse for putting off a good deed. He spoke, but did not do. Then there was the bleeding Pharisee. 
The bleeding Pharisee. The bleeding Pharisee was committed to purity of heart and mind and soul. And so the bleeding Pharisee would avoid all contact with women. And in order to do that, would shut their eyes in public when they were out and about so they would not look on a woman with lust. The only problem with that is it's really difficult to walk around with your eyes closed. And so they would bump into things like buildings and walls. And you understand why they're called bleeding Pharisees. Fourth, there were the tumbling Pharisees. Tumbling Pharisees. These are men who are so ostentatiously humble that they would walk around all bent over, kind of looking at the ground, as it were, but they would not even lift their feet off the ground as they walked. They just sort of shuffled along, and there were frequent tripping hazards, and uh, so they were the tumbling Pharisees. Tumbling Pharisees. Fifth were the ever-reckoning Pharisee. The ever-reckoning Pharisee. This was one who was sort of constantly figuring the angles, doing the calculations of their spirituality in terms of profit and loss. It was a profit and loss endeavor. And, and one, uh, this kind of Pharisee was committed to the idea that his good deeds were putting God a little bit further in debt to him each and every day. So he would keep track of all of his good deeds. The ever-reckoning Pharisee. Sixth was the fearing Pharisee. This is one who lived in dread of divine punishment. And so they were always cleaning the outsides of the cups and the platters. So that that they might seem to be doing good at, at every turn. And thus avoid the impending judgment of God. According to the Talmud, there were the God-fearing Pharisees. Not many, but these were ones who really and truly loved God and found delight in the law of God. Much like Psalm 1 and verse 2. Now it's interesting, I think, because the Jews themselves... This is not something that, that some other person, you know, kind of came up with all these. The Jews themselves recognize these tendencies among their own spiritual leaders. They recognize the reality that, that most of them had externalized what it meant to love God and to follow God. Yet it was the system. And ultimately, it was the system that the nation chose to follow. Demonstrates the depth of spiritual blindness. But lest we be too hard initially on the Pharisees, I think we should acknowledge that they didn't start out. The scribes and the Pharisees did not set out to create a religion of superficial spirituality. They didn't all sit down and say, okay, how do we take the law of Moses and completely empty it of all content, all meaning, and just make it a meaningless sense of outward and external rules and regs? How do we create a superficial spirituality? That's not what they did. What happened is that over time, Over time, external behaviors were substituted for what it meant to have the inward reality of a changed heart. The inward reality of a changed heart, see, lies beyond us, doesn't it? It requires the work of, of God. It's a divine work by the Spirit of God. It's not under the control of man. 
But external behaviors, ah, yes, they do lie under our control. It's a subtle switch, but over time it it produces the difference between heaven and hell. Now that danger, beloved, I believe always exists. I do not think that the, the, the danger of a superficial spirituality, of an externalized devotion to God is somehow unique to this group of men 2,000 years ago. In fact, I think it exists, the danger here, among all who are serious about God, serious about the scriptures, and serious about the pursuit of holiness. I think the danger exists. In other words, I think the danger exists for us. The danger exists for us. And in particular, I think the danger exists for how we relate to younger generations. Inadvertently, we can can allow what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ to, to morph into an external set of regulations and duties. Because we cannot touch the heart of our children. We cannot touch the heart of those whom we're discipling. But we can prescribe duties and regs. And actually, we can be quite good at it. Quite good at it. So here's what I want to do this morning. This morning, I want to look with you at three marks of superficial spirituality. And its antidote. Three marks of superficial spirituality and its antidote, so that by the grace of God we might avoid the condemnation of the Pharisees. Okay? That's where we're going this morning. Three marks of superficial spirituality. Number one, superficial spirituality is harsh in its demands. Superficial spirituality is harsh in its demands. In particular, verse 4, but let me just begin at the beginning of the chapter. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Okay, cultural background to this. In the culture of that day, it would not be uncommon to see a a merciful owner of an animal or perhaps even a servant to create a, a load, a bundle, as it were, to tie it up big and to put it on the back of their animal or their servant for that for that beast of burden, as it were, to carry along while the owner himself would walk along beside the, the beast of burden with an empty hand and berate the animal or berate the servant the whole time for for its failure to carry the load quickly enough or in a way that suited the master. That's sort of the idea here. 
And what Jesus is saying is that in that kind of attitude, in a similar way, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they, did, they had encrusted the law of God, the law of Moses, with their, their uh, oral traditions, particularly as they related to the, to the regards of ceremonial purity, what it meant so that one could be pure before God. And they had done so in such a way that the common man would struggle to live out the rules and regs at the same time they were trying to make a living. Whereas the more leisurely class, the, the, the Pharisees or the scribes, they, they cared little for the inconvenience, for the difficulty, for at times the impossibility of the struggle of the common man to live it all out. And they wouldn't even lift a finger. They wouldn't even make the most minimal of effort to help them with their struggles. To ease their burdens of over-regulation. They would merely add to the legal code. Add to the code. Add to the code. Add to the code. Why? Well, because by and large, the, the Pharisees disdained the people. The common people. They had, a, they had a disdainful attitude towards them. They didn't think they were, they were worthy. And so they really didn't care to help them. I think you can see this, and it's worth turning you there, to John 7. Take you to John 7. You have to understand, this is really a, an interesting dynamic here, because... The Pharisees, they, they disdained the common people. And the common people recognized sort of the externalized nature of their, of their commitment to, the, to follow God. And yet at the same time, the common people sort of respected them and, and wanted to be like them. Very strange. But here, this is in uh, John 7. Jesus has been teaching here in the uh, temple area. And the, uh, the, the, in uh, verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Jesus, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize Jesus. So they sent the temple guard to go and arrest him. Verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? They didn't arrest him. The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. You kind of get their, their approach here. Nicodemus, he who came to him before um, being one of them, being one of the Pharisees, said to them, Our law does not judge a man and unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, you're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. You just get the idea here that the common people, they have not reached our level of spirituality. They're accursed. They don't know the law. Not like us. They don't keep the law. Not like us. Beloved, the Pharisees' basic approach with regard to, to the people was you need to try harder. 
You need to try harder. I can do it. What's the matter with you? That was their basic approach. Just work harder. Look at me. I can do it. Why can't you do it? Something's wrong with you. And that approach is harsh. And that approach is merciless. And that kind of approach to spirituality produces guilt. It produces weariness and it produces frustration among people. How different Jesus' approach to the people, right? In, John, or in Matthew chapter 11, he says, right? Come to me, for my yoke is easy and my load is what? Light. My yoke is easy. My load is light. That doesn't mean that Jesus is not concerned about holiness. What it means is that Jesus has reduced holiness to a whole series of do's and don'ts. Rather than seek peace with God through an ever-increasing series of rules and regulations, Jesus says, you come to the Father through me. Come to me. Follow me. Trust my sacrifice to satisfy God on your behalf. Beloved, when we trust in Christ as our Lord and our Savior, God so fills our heart through his spirit with a love for Christ that the the path of holiness is no longer a duty. It becomes a delight. It becomes a delight. Now, I get it. It, we, We don't walk the path perfectly. That's not what I'm trying to say. But there is a change in orientation that says, I love you, God, because you first loved me. And I seek and I desire to bring glory to your name. It's all about a relationship with God through his son. God sought us to be reunited in a relationship with him by sending his own son to bridge the impossible gulf between God and man. We don't earn God's favor Through rules and rituals. God lavishes his love on us. Through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is the difference between heaven and hell. The difference between a real spirituality and a superficial spirituality. Well, not only is superficial spirituality harsh in its demands, it's also focused on outward displays of religious devotion designed to impress others with how devoted it is. And that's number two. Superficial spirituality is ostentatious in its piety. Great word, ostentatious in its piety. Verse 5. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. Notice Jesus says they do all their deeds. What an indictment. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. In other words, they are all about the show. They are all about the show. 
All about the impression that they are going to make upon other people with regard to their religious devotion. They want people to see them as highly devoted to God. Highly devoted to God. Now, previously, Jesus had rebuked them in uh, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. In verses 2 and 5, he had rebuked them for, their, for making a show out of generosity, right? You remember? You sound the trumpet when you give, right? You say, hey, look at me. Here I go. Boom. Won't everybody think I'm generous? Or when they pray, they stand out in such a way and make these long prayers that everybody walks by and goes, wow, what a pious man. Listen to him pray. Well, here Jesus calls them out for their religious garb. He calls them out for their religious garb. Previously for their generosity, for their prayer, here for their religious garb. What's going on here is is basically they are parading their commitment to the law of Moses. They're doing what the people do, but they're doing it bigger and better than everybody else. And specifically, Jesus calls out phylacteries and tassels to make his point. Now, what are phylacteries? Well, phylacteries are small leather boxes, you know, maybe, um, maybe two inches by two inches, inch and a half, something like that, with a leather strap. And um, they would contain passages from the law of Moses, specifically Exodus 13, 1 to 16, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, and Deuteronomy 11, 13 to 21. They'd be placed in these leather boxes, and they would be bound around the forehead and around the, uh, the left hand. The left hand, because it's closer to the heart. And the, the scriptural basis for this was an attempt at a literal fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 8. Or it's recorded there, you shall bind them. Right? Let me back up, actually. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them... You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, originally, God's intent here is metaphorical. It is metaphorical. The idea here is that he wants his people to have the word of God so dominate them that it will be everywhere in their life, that there will be no part of their life that has been marked off as as the word of God has no place here. So the whole idea of the head and the hand was uh, was that it was to control the way they thought. The word of God was to control their thoughts and it was to control their actions. So you bind it on your head, you bind it on your hand. Now, interestingly, historically, it wasn't until about a thousand years later that when this was originally written in Deuteronomy 6 that, that it began to appear in leather boxes bound onto people's heads and hands. So originally it was understood to be metaphorical. Now it had become ritualistic. They had turned it into a literal command to wear the scripture on your body. To wear the scripture on your body. 
Like most things, the Jews by this time had externalized and ritualized God's original intent. While at the same time failing to heed what is written in the word of God that's plastered onto their body. Written onto their gates and doorposts. And beloved, that's a phenomenon that exists even to this day. Even to this day. You see it on the head and the hand. You don't see it in the heart. Well, that's phylacteries. What about tassels? Well, tassels are in a little bit different class. Tassels are actually specifically commanded by God in Numbers chapter 15, verses 38 to 40. God says to them, you shall put tassels on the corners of your outer garment in order that when you look at them, you will be reminded of your covenant relationship with me. So he says, go ahead. This is what I want you to do. Jesus wore tassels on his outer robe, his cloak. In fact, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 20, that's what the woman with the hemorrhage reached out to touch. Remember, and she was healed. Now, in later Judaism, the tassels gave way, and people stopped wearing, you know, outer garments like that. They gave way to prayer shawls. And so among the Orthodox Jewish men, you still see prayer shawls today. That follows from the, the command for tassels. So the phylacteries are a scribal addition. The tassels are not. But interestingly here, that's not the point Jesus focuses on. It's not what he focuses on. Listen, if, if people take what God intends metaphorically and they make it literal, that's not good. That's not a good idea. But that doesn't incur the rebuke of Christ, the wrath of Christ. What incurs his rebuke, what incurs his wrath, is when these outward symbols of our relationship to God become a means to show off. Our devotion to God. That incurs his wrath. Notice here specifically, verse 5, what do they do? He doesn't say you wear phylacteries. He says you broaden your phylacteries. You lengthen your tassels. Instead of a little box, you got a big box. Right? Everybody else got little boxes. You got big box. Big box. In other words, you, you enlarge these things in order to make a show of it. In order that everybody who sees you goes, that's a big box. Right? I mean, they may not say it out loud, but they think in their minds, wow. Wow. It's easy to laugh at the foolishness, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we don't do that. We don't, we don't tie boxes onto our hands and onto our heads, so we're not guilty of such things, right? Uh, you know better than that. We've got our own substitutes. We've got our own substitutes. Ways to show off our piety. Perhaps the uh, size of our Bibles. I remember when I first came to faith uh, as a believer uh, you were committed to Christ if you carried a gigantic black leather King James Version Bible. Gigantic, thick, big. <laughs> then you were committed. You were committed. No thin line Bibles. Thin line Bibles are for thin disciples, right? <laughs> you know, we want fat ones. 
How about your choice of English translation? There's a way to show off our piety. Yeah, I have the <clears throat> literal translation. What do you have? Perhaps the style of our dress? How about the formality of our prayers? We have one language for everybody except God. Then we have the special God language. I'm not talking about speaking in tongues, although I suppose uh, old English could be tongues. You know what I'm saying, don't you? The special prayer language. Very formal. How about the posture of our worship? Do we stand? Do we sit? Do we kneel? Hands? No hands? I remember years ago being in a Bible study. And uh, whenever we would pray at the end of the Bible study, one guy got down on his, on his knees and he would raise his hands up in the air. And, I mean, that's fine. But wait till we all close our eyes. Wait till we all close our eyes. We should not think we're immune. I mean, these are just a few. I'm sure there's many more. You think of them. Send me an email. Right? The desire to impress other people with how committed we are to God is not a unique phenomena to the scribes and the Pharisees. It can afflict us too. And it's a sign of superficial spirituality when it does. Superficial, superficial spirituality is harsh in its demands. Second, it's ostentatious in its piety. Third, it is passionate in its self-importance. It is passionate in its self-importance. Verse 6. They love. Notice that word. Love is a word of passion. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. Jesus says that their superficial spirituality reveals itself in their love for honor and acclaim for other, from other people. Specifically here, Christ lays out four examples, right? First, they love to be at the head table of the banquet. They want to be at the head table. Now, the head table at the banquet in their day is different than the head table at the banquet at our day. In their day, a banquet would be held at what's called a triclinium. These were, this is a table of three, kind of horseshoe-shaped it would be low to the ground. There would be cushions. You'd lie on your left side on your elbow, and you'd use your right hand to eat. And uh, the, the center, the host of the feast would sit in the, in the center part of the horseshoe. That would be the chief. And, and anyone who sits to his left or his right or is in a position of honor. You can kind of see it in John 13 in the, the Feast of the Last Supper. So the idea here is when, when they were invited... To a banquet, they want to be at the head table. They want to be right there. They love that sort of thing. Secondly, he says they love the, the chief seats in the synagogue. Now, times have changed because the chief seats in the synagogue were the ones up front looking at the congregation, they were reserved for, for honored guests, for important dignitaries. From the chief seat, you could see and be seen by everybody else. We've sort of changed it in our uh, day and age. The chief seats now are in the back. You have to come early to get them. 
right? Seats that nobody wants are up front. So some things have changed, sort of. You know I'd be facetious with you. And I'm going to stop before I get myself in trouble, which I could. Reminded of James 2. Right? Remember what James has to say? James 2, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by, by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? The basic point is, if you say to the wealthy man, come sit up here in the chief seat where you can be seen and see, Whereas the poorer man, you say, you get off to the side here, out of the way. Then you have become a judge with an evil motive. They love that sort of thing. They want to be seen by everybody. They want the head place at the table. They want the chief seat in the synagogues. Third, they want to be singled out for public honor. Respectful greetings in the marketplace. It's not just, uh, you know, they bump into somebody in the marketplace, and the marketplace is where everybody is. They don't want to just bump into them and have someone say, oh, hi, Bob. How you? Well, it probably wouldn't be Bob. It would be Yosef. Hello, Yosef. How are you doing today? They want people to, to, you know, kind of greet them in such a way that, that the, their honor and their respect and, and everybody around knows that they're somebody. They want to be singled out. They want to be addressed. They love this title, he says, uh, being called rabbi. Being called rabbi. The idea behind the word rabbi here is outstanding teacher. Hello, outstanding teacher of God. It immediately sort of sets them apart as superior to everybody else. We have our modern equivalents, I think. Reverend. Hello, Reverend. Doctor. Doctor so-and-so. A couple of my favorites. We don't use them here in the States, but they're used over in Europe. There's the right reverend. There's reverend. There's the right reverend. And then there's the most reverend. I kid you not. Those are, those are levels of status. Okay? From now on, you can refer to me as the right reverend. <laughs> Just got to get me one of them hats. Silliness. What's the antidote for all this? What is the antidote for this? What is the antidote for the temptation to superficial spirituality? It's the same old message that Jesus has been preaching and, and, and Matthew has been recording for us throughout his gospel. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. 
Three times previously, same message. Here we go. We get it again. Why do you think that might be? Why would that be? Why would we need to hear the antidote over and over again, do you think? Huh? So what is the antidote? Reject worldly prominence. Verse 8, but do not be called rabbi. For one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father. For one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. Jesus specifically instructs his followers to avoid honorific titles that draw the focus of men away from God and put it upon themselves. Avoid these kinds of titles. Avoid the title rabbi, most outstanding, most excellent teacher. Why? Because ultimately you only have one teacher, and that is Christ. Verse 10. The word leader there, by the way, could also be translated teacher. The idea here is there's a quality within the body. We are brothers and sisters in the family of God. Now, that doesn't mean God doesn't call and gift certain men to, to exercise certain positions within a church and the giftedness that God has given them to, to teach and to shepherd and to exercise spiritual leadership and authority among the people of God. That's true. He does. But what is important here is that those that have been gifted and called into such a position, it's important that they not see themselves as separate from the body, above the body, and that the body not see them as above the rest of the body. Any authority that that resides in the leadership among God's people is an authority that is a derived authority. It comes from God. It is on loan. It is on loan. John MacArthur says well here, and I quote it for you. They need to remember that they are all neither the source of truth, which is God's word, nor the illumination of truth, which is God's spirit. That's really good stuff. Not the source of truth, which is the word of God, nor the illumination of truth, which is God's spirit. The reformers derive the idea of the priesthood of the believers. You've probably heard that expression. It comes from this very thing. The priesthood of believers. Do not call anyone, verse 9, on earth your father. The idea, again, I think is in context here, is of spiritual superior, perhaps even the, the source of one's spiritual life. Jesus says, listen, we're all brothers. We're all members of the body of Christ. The source of truth lies and comes from God, our Heavenly Father. So, I think that Jesus is directly invalidating here the idea of a pope. The idea of a pope. The word pope is Latin and it means father. Pontiff, bridge builder, is what the word means. And the idea is it's one who builds a bridge between God and man. The notion of priest or father, 
one who acts as the mediator between God and man through the ceremony of the Mass. And Jesus is specifically declaring these off-limits. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. No human mediator. It's essential that we know that. But beloved, this is, it's more than just titles. Popular in our day is the title senior pastor. Not in love with that title personally. Not saying anything about anybody who is using that title. I'm just telling you, I'm not in love with it. I think it's potentially confusing. Senior servant, junior servant, or associate servant, or assistant servant, just doesn't make sense to me. But what Jesus is criticizing here is seeking spiritual promotion and prominence by worldly means. It's about lavishing spiritual promotion and prominence upon people as, in such a way that feeds their ego, contributes to the superficial illusion of a, of a superior spirituality. Ultimately, it's about drawing attention away from God and the glory of Christ and focusing it on us. And that, my friends, is a very serious sin. God will not share his glory with anyone. Anyone. So as the people of God, we must reject worldly prominence. That's where the antidote begins beyond that and finishing here. The antidote is to embrace a life of service. Embrace a life of service. Verses 11 and 12. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Isn't it interesting the way God does math? Sort of completely flips it on its head the way we do it. Prominence among the people of God Jesus says is achieved in the most otherworldly fashion. You go down to go up. Right? Imagine stepping in an elevator and you want to, you know, you're on the first floor and you want to go to the 10th and you press basement. Well, that's what Jesus says. You go down and then let God take you back up. Beloved, that means we should be looking for greatness in the most unexpected places. The most unexpected places. True greatness lies in those who are quietly and faithfully, lovingly and unselfishly serving brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. That's where we find true greatness. That kind of greatness likely will not be fully recognized, though, in this age. It awaits the age to come. Right? Notice this. Verse 12, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. The idea is at the end of the age. The end of the age. Not in this age, but in the age to come, the scales are balanced. Then each man's deeds become fully known, and, and Christ, the impartial judge, will give out reward according to his sovereign discretion. It'll be the great reversal. 
Those that have held great prominence here in this life, we may be surprised at how little there is in the next. And those who appear to be nobody in this life, we may be in for a surprise. May God give us grace to love and value here and now the things that he loves and that he values. Let's pray. Father, we confess, O Lord, the temptations to our own hearts to be drawn aside in this area, to seek after worldly recognition and acclaim, to lavish it upon your servants and place before them great obstacles and stumbling blocks, to craft a a religious system over which we have complete control, to neuter you, to put you in a box to to make you controllable. And then to congratulate ourselves on how spiritual we really are. Oh God, where those wicked temptations arise within our hearts, may you snuff them out by your spirit through his word. May you help us to take seriously what you said here, to love what you love and to hate what you hate, to resist in the power of the spirit, the temptation for self-aggrandizement, to recognize that your son did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And when we are most like him, he is most glorified. May that be our delight. Change us, O God. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.